This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? It's 9.36, Friday the 27th of October and you're listening to The Morning Run with Philip C. Shazana who's just popped into the studio and Ta-da! I'm Wong shouting, <laughs> yes. Do you think we will let you go so easily on Friday without turning up on of our show? Of course not. Of course not. This is the best part of Friday. Yay, as you said, Xiaoning, WTF. Yeah, because we're counting down the seconds. But of course, this is WTF. So our weekly roundup show of all the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. So first off, I have a question for you all. Who is Mike Johnson? Da-da-da-da. He's a basketball player. <laughs> One more chance, Philip. One more. He's a golfer. He doesn't play... Oh, I'm sure he does play sports, but he's not known for his sporting ability. Who is he? Does anyone have answers for me? Well, he's the new US House Speaker. Bingo! Did we ever think we would get one by the end of this week? Was it the big surprise in US politics? I would say yes, because we had been following the story and uh, the week had begun with yet another speaker candidate uh, falling to the wayside. Uh, that was Tom Emmer, who was nominated and then withdrew like within hours of his nomination because he just couldn't get the votes. 24 hours later, suddenly this guy, Mike Johnson, which apparently even some senators in US Congress did not know who he was. They, who? Were, they were Googling who... <laughs> He was. Mike who? So that's just, that just shows how low profile he was, but yet he managed to take the, the top post in Congress. We but, woke up to this news, didn't we? Literally. Yes. But I think that's the exact reason why he got the post, because he's the most inexperienced in, as a speaker in the last 140 years. He's the third youngest speaker. And perhaps because he doesn't have a track record, there's nothing, there's not, you can't hold him against anything per se. And that's why he hasn't created that amount of enemies in the US Congress. And perhaps that's why he got the job. Especially compared to uh, one of the other candidates, Jim Jordan. Now, mm. he was known as like a rebel firebrand of the mm. Republican Tea Party. He made a lot of enemies in the Republican Party, which is why as many as 25 uh, reps didn't want to uh, support him in his candidature. But Mike Johnson, yeah, like you said, le- relative newcomer, probably hasn't had the time to burn bridges with people in the party. Kevin McCarthy was also the same issue, right? There were personality issues with him. And that's why he, he didn't survive very long. And I wonder if you apply this even in corporate Malaysia, that if you stay too long in an organisation, you actually create enemies and people know your track record. Then I know you're looking at me. It's very hard. You, you've been, to be <laughs> fair, you haven't been here very long, right? But imagine those who stay too long in an organisation. They have this certain perception of them and that's why then they limit their ability to move up the career path, right? Because there's too many daggers in their back? Too many daggers. Or they've stabbed too many people along the way? Perhaps so, or actually created a lot of fissures over the Mm. period of time. And I wonder if that's also the tension that also applies that you you cannot overstay your welcome in a specific organisation. That's an interesting lesson. I never thought about that way. But yeah, this could be like a cautionary tale for all those people who are clinging on to their posts way longer than perhaps Mm. what the rest of the room uh, is willing to bear with. (laughs) Sorry, I had the moment thinking about Malaysia for a few minutes there and I got lost in my thoughts and I was like thinking, who would this apply to? But never mind, never mind. My thing is, my point is, okay, if you're not very experienced, which has worked to your advantage to get into this position, what happens from now onwards ah, though? Because you excellent. have become a leader of a house that is extremely polarised, even among your own party. Let's not even go to talk about the Democrats who obviously have, you know, their guns out for you. 
So what's going to happen? Because a lot of very important bills are hit. I think that's a very good point. Will the inexperience help you get the job, but will it help you retain the job? So how long will he be able to stay on to this post, right? Because as you say, he's got a huge entry to resolve. So one of the questions I actually have about him taking this is whether he is also bound to the same conditions that Kevin McCarthy was bound at, whereby any party uh, representative can actually put in a motion to vacate, one person can then vacate the speaker. Is he also subject to that kind of rule? Because if he isn't, then yes, actually I can see him stay on for quite a while, especially if the entire Republican Party uh, will support his moves. The, The Democrats, I feel, will be quite combative, given that Mike Johnson is the most conservative speaker that the House has seen, apparently, based on what his beliefs are, based on what his statements have been. So I am curious to see how... The Republican Party is going to navigate this, actually. Will they end up going more right than what they have traditionally been? How much more right can they get? I'm I'm really curious. Well, now that the right wing is in charge, like now that the far right is in charge, I feel mm. like yeah, we might just go see them go extreme. Okay, so just just backtracking a little bit, right? For those who are still wondering who Mike Johnson is, what does he stand for? Let's let's talk about his his character. Okay. Fine, so fine. he tried to overturn the 2020 <laughs> election. So he doesn't believe in the rule of law. He doesn't believe in the will of people. I'm just, I'm just thinking what's in my head. He was a spokesperson. This is according to The Guardian for a hate group. Because before entering politics, he worked for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is designated a hate group by the Southern Law Poverty Center, which tracks US extremists. This is their perce- perception. And he apparently is a climate skeptic. Well, that's, I think, very interesting, right? Because he probably needed these credentials to get him past the post. That's the thing is, but to now enact a legislation in tandem with these beliefs, I think it's going to be very hard to pull through because I don't think everybody in the House Republicans supports those views. Where's the middle, though, of the party? They've yeah. gone really quiet. Which, again, is the question we, I think we posed to, you know, uh, I think Paul Zogby, I think. John Zogby. John Zogby, I think, two, three days ago, whether you are going to see a divided Republican party as a result. And he thinks that it's actually inevitable. Or he's actually seeing it now, but not in just structure and form. Well, it's going to be an interesting next couple of months for the Congress. Okay, let's turn our attention to another headline that caught my eye, which is the United Auto Workers Union might have reached, might have reached a tentative labour deal with Ford Motor. This is the first of the Detroit big three car manufacturers to negotiate uh, a settlement to strikes joined by so far 45,000 workers since mid-September. Now, what's unusual is the United States this summer has seen record number of strikes, although actually in terms of the percentage of workers who are unionised, the number has dropped significantly in the last three, four, five decades. So this is also the the, the question whether we are seeing this revival of unions. But as you say, membership has been declining as a whole, but they still wield a lot of influence here. For certain sectors. For certain sectors, but I mean, big ones like auto is huge. I mean, we've talked about the media and entertainment industry also being one in particular as well. The question here is, what are driving these concerns? Are they just the standard old concerns about cost of living issues? Because they really percolated quite a lot at the start of the year. And so people say, look, as a result, we need rising wages. Especially with the auto industry, a lot of it is also backdated in nature. Mm. So that's unique to this industry. It doesn't apply to everybody as well. 
And I get, and don't forget that for other unions, there are other new pressing issues that come into the mix, yeah. right? Like for the media entertainment, it's AI. AI. They want to make sure that the guardrails are in place so that they don't get exploited in the future when the technology becomes more widespread in an industry. Uh, but what's interesting about this um, auto worker strike was also the strategy that they uh, used because they didn't strike all at once everywhere, but they took a very piecemeal approach. We're going to strike a little bit here, and then if you if you still can't, you know, come to an agreement, we're going to strike more and more. So you've seen over the weeks how the strike has grown bigger and bigger across the different uh, groups. At one point, they were like, okay, we're going to hold the strike with Stellantis, but we're going to broaden it with these other car groups or uh, the other way around. Now that we see Ford coming to a tentative agreement, so perhaps the strikes on Ford manufacturing plants will stop, but the other two will continue, putting more pressure on them to also come to a point that they reach a compromise. I think it's such an interesting strategy to adopt that usually in the past, people just do a big bang. Mm. Everybody walks off in one go. That's what you're saying here. It's a graduated approach. So I wonder if the Ford deal is intended to stop the expansion and then you kind of bring it back down again. Because when you try and phase it and then someone cuts the deal midway, does it just lose momentum of the strikes as a whole? Apparently, the other two automakers, Chrysler and uh, Stellantis, G- Stellantis GM, GM. Uh, they've also been thinking about how to navigate this, right? Because what the strikers have done, or strike workers, strike has done is, they're, like you say, Shah's very strategic. So the next point of action was actually to choose the plants which are the most profitable to the auto companies, which will hit their bottom line. And we already see that in terms of the announcements coming out of the auto companies warning that uh, next quarter profits will be impacted. So it's a clever strike. Like you say, it's strategic. Now, the other thing is that it's not only just happening in the United States because the United Kingdom this summer lost the most working days to strikes in decades and even that is happening in Europe. Hey, it's even happening at the Australian <laughs> Reserve Bank. Reserve Bank. Uh, people are just feeling that whatever they earned isn't enough. You know, inflation is real. Yeah. Yeah, and this is just a side note, but I I know that in the UK, in Scotland, um, universities were on strike. University lecturers were on strike for a while, which uh, stopped people from getting degrees. And I still don't know whether that has been resolved or not, actually. So my niece's university, she went to third year, not knowing how well she did or how badly she did for second year, Mm. because her lecturers were all on strike and nobody was marking papers. And I think it's, it's quite becoming more common. It's I think people are frustrated. And people the- are frustrated. And I think the issue also is also the nature of the employment market. If it's if you are in a very tight employment market, then you have flexibility to move There is around. that as well. But if you see some softness in it, I think people feel they have to, you know... Just uh, bear it. Bear it. Grin and, and bear it. Grin and bear it and fight within the system and make it work within the system. I wonder if these strikes are a result of people actually seeing that there are really limited options as well for employment mobility as well. Okay, let's move on to something more exciting, which actually is a story Philip highlighted. <laughs> why would it be me? Yes, though? you know, Tinder. Okay, then you might be thinking, why are we interested in Tinder? It's not a business story. Hello, it is. It's part of Match.com, which is actually listed in the United States, by the way. 19 analysts recommend a buy on this stock. Nine holes. They have like 20 brands after them, uh, under their, under this Match.com. Uh, current share price, 34 US dollars and 92 cents. 
consensus target price, $54.48. US They What's are this? pretty much the monopoly in um, online dating, right? Yeah, they have on, Match, they have, uh, uh, well, Match is the name, but they've got Tinder, they've got Hinge, they've got, I feel like everything is pretty much under them. Bumble is separate, but everything else, I feel that that's okay. a Match group thing. I've got the names, Tinder, Match, Hinge, Okay, Cupid, okay. Our Time. Those are some of the names and they operate globally and they have sites in over 40 languages. Okay, yeah. so don't don't pray, pray, all right? This is the <laughs> modern way to date. But what have they done differently, Philip? Well, apparently what happens now is that they're going to ease all your post-swipe pondering by allowing up to 15 family members and friends to scrutinise your potential matches and the members can view profiles and make suggestions without having to be on the dating app. Wow. <laughs> okay, not available in Malaysia yet. Available in 15 <laughs> countries at the moment. They're planning to make it global in a few months. Are you going to allow your family and friends to choose your future dates? I I'm mean- definitely not going to allow, especially with these people I'm speaking to in this studio. I'm not going to invite you, <laughs> oh, Shaoning, Shazana, and even producer. But we are very good at investigating backgrounds. That's our expertise. I know, I know. That's Do you why know I'm not. that most, well, not most, but there is evidence to show that friends actually give the best uh, recommendations? <laughs> in terms of setting people up together because they know you and they know other, you know, if they know the prospective person. So you could be my Auntie Seema then. Yes. 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 From Indian Matchmaker. Yes, Yes. exactly. Right. You are my Auntie Seema. Everybody needs an Auntie Seema. Is that what you're saying? Definitely. And I think it's really smart of Tinder to actually capitalize on this. I think it is a really... um, it's, it's a catchy way to get more people on the app, yeah. uh, maybe even increase their signups. They did pretty well in their second quarter uh, earnings. Uh, they proje- projected improved third quarter. I think we're still waiting to see how that's going to turn out. Uh, but yeah, something to watch. Definitely very interesting. We're heading into some messages. We'll come back and take a look at what's happening in Malaysia. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. It's 9.50 and thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. And Philip C, Shazana and I are going to sit here and go through all the other local news tidbits that you might have missed. But this one I don't think anyone really missed. And that is, question, how much or how much should English be used in Malaysia? Who wants to take this? Well, we are discussing this because of headlines that have come out this week, right? Where the Prime Minister, Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim, said that uh, all correspondents to government ministries and agencies should be in Bahasa Malaysia. Uh, and not only that, I, I read that he's also said that letters sent to the government that aren't in Bahasa Malaysia can be ignored and returned. Which to me feels very, very direct. Can I say draconian? It just feels very harsh uh, because yeah. the government is meant to provide service regardless of what language that is in. You know, I understand wanting to uphold and uplift uh, the national language, but is this the right way to do it? Okay, so let me put this into some context, okay? He made these comments when officiating a national language and reading carnival. And he did say that English is an international trade but he felt that there was an attitude that had gone too far in some places like government offices and even more so in private universities as well as other sectors. So I'm not, I, I suppose he's saying, can we use our national language more? Yeah, the question is how do you encourage the usage of it? I 
feel like if you want to encourage the national language, you know, you do it through a love of literature. You do it through mm. more translation of works, for example. Bring more famous works, bring more works of great literature into Bahasa Malaysia. You know, open that up. And I feel like that would be a fantastic way to really make people love the language. But if you want to just force people, oh, we must only communicate in Malay, I feel like that has a different, it just gives people a different signal, a different perception. And those who are more rebellious, those who feel like, oh, I don't want to do, I don't want to do what you tell me to do, you know, they're, they're not going to take that. Well, it's the same logic with anything, right? You want to inculcate love in something. It's not through some rules and force, I think. Can't be through a you stick. Can't, you can't be you through a stick. You mean it has to be a carrot? I think it has to be a combination. Or even if there's a stick, there has to be some really thoughtful explanation behind it. Mm. And how. And, and, and I think make it more carroty, in my view. My thing about this is that if I'm a foreigner and I'm just reading these headlines and I don't know much about Malaysia, right? I'm a foreign investor, so I'm going to pretend to be an MNC looking around the region to park my money. And I see this headline, will I get a bit worried? Like, you know, I thought Malaysia is supposed to be very open. We can communicate however we want. And how am I going to communicate with all the government agencies? You know? Yeah, yeah. So those questions come to my mind also. Yeah, I think I, I wonder when when he said this whether mm. he was applying certain exclusions like okay, if it's a foreign investor. He did say it's only or, it's meant for like more for local for companies. For locals, but then where do you draw the line? Is also the question when you start doing things like that. It feels like a yeah, putting everything in an us versus them kind of thing. You, yeah. I don't know. It it didn't really sit well with me, and I think it didn't also sit well with um, government agencies in Sarawak who say that uh, well, English is also an official language for us, and we will continue to accept English correspondence along with Bahasa Malaysia correspondence. Well, right. it's part of their constitution, isn't it? It's unique to Sarawak. But I think even some Sabah uh, government, well, some ex-ministers, or some ex-MPs, current MPs actually have said, no, we, we still want to use English. So, and you know, we keep coming back to this where we need to think of languages. You know, there has like this winner-take-all approach. Can't we all like languages and like there's, there shouldn't be like a first place or second place, right? Well, it's interesting the flip side with our science and maths, right? How mm. we also allow the dual language option available. Well, that has been eroded over the years, I think. And mm. there's still a lot of contestation on whether the dual language program should even be continued or what or whatnot. The implementation has been really patchy. I mean, I think in, in general, it's understood that correspondence with government agencies tend to be in Basa Malaysia anyway. It's the whole like, oh, if, you know, if they don't do it in BM, return it. it it's the whole this or nothing mm. that that doesn't sit well with That's me. That's true. It's very interesting because I've sit on, been on government meetings before. The communication is naturally starting always in Bahasa, but there are naturally people who sit in the audience who naturally can't do Bahasa or cannot communicate a point effectively in BM, and they allow English. And it's expected that if you cannot uh, communicate fluently in BM, then it's okay, right? Because we just want to make sure you get your point across effectively. Mm. What we want are Malaysians who are multi, trilingual, actually. Mm. There's no harm in that, right? Learning more languages is always an advantage. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about politics. Uh, it's, of course, Parliament season. It's continuing till November 20th. But what has caught my eye is what UMNO MPs have been saying when they aren't they supposed to be part of the unity government. And the first off is actually comments by our previous defence minister who is now MP for Surambong, which is Dato Sri Hishamuddin Hussein. He has criticised the lack of urgency and focus displayed by ministers in addressing economic challenges faced by the country because now we're going through the debates on Budget 2024. 
I Are you just, surprised? I, I was very surprised. And what, what I think for me was interesting was this distinction between uh, those who are backbenchers and those in government. Because with this respect to Hisham Muddin, who's saying he's in view of backbencher now, mm. he had actually placed a lot of criticism to Miti. Mm. And guess who's the minister of Miti? Tankuzafu. And which party is Tankuzafu in? Amno. Amno. So really, I feel it's not only a division within Amno and those in Pakana Harapan, but it's between those who are in government those versus those who are backbenchers. I mean, you know, in one way, it's not a bad thing. We want backbenchers to be critical. We want them to be constructive. Yes. We don't want blind loyalty. Mm. Yes. Uh, but because of the political situation, the political nature of our landscape, it does. it's very interesting when these types of things come up, especially since it wasn't the norm before. No. Yeah, and I don't think it's a bad thing, actually. I think it's very healthy that there is actually enough introspection within the government to say, hey, what's holding you accountable? Okay, so very interesting times for Malaysia. A sign of maybe uh, maturing democracy. Now, that's all we have from the morning run on uh, WTF. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. news bulletin, and then it's over to Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.